Welcome to the Grace City Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to hello at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. So I'm reading Mark 10, 32 through 52, I believe. Okay. (laughs) All right. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want to do for us whatever we ask. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at the right hand and the other at your left hand in glory. You don't, you don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Then the ten heard about this. They became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among, among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho, as Jesus and the disciples, uh, Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which is son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When they heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Thank you, Matt. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We thank you for what you are going to speak to us through this scripture today. Father, as we've prayed through this entire series, would you give us the ears to hear? Would you soften our hearts towards anything that the world or our experiences may have calloused? And help it to receive uh, your good news, your truth in this. So we thank you. Would your Holy Spirit speak through me to my precious family here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, the title for today, like I said, it's our last one in the Journey to Jerusalem mini-series as we go through Mark, is simply Make Me a Servant. Make Me a Servant. I think as we read through that, you can see where that's coming from. Um, But today we see that the Lord's instruction on spiritual greatness kind of comes to this pinnacle or this climax in verse 45 here as we're reading through this where it says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the key to Mark's gospel right here. Chapter 10, verse 45, and the ultimate reason that Jesus came, this gets at the heart of the gospel Um, And it's a pattern for all who would follow Christ, that you're not coming to be served, but 
to serve. Like, this is a really big deal. And we could do an entire sermon or an entire sermon series on this one verse, 1045. But nevertheless, Jesus has some stuff to say before, and he has some stuff to say after. So we are going to look at that today. As our expression, I believe, that we should have is a grateful response to the one who came to give his life as a ransom for us. Um, I believe that the gospel will transform us as we operate out of that place. And I believe today we'll highlight some of the things that the gospel will do naturally inside of us as we have faith in Jesus and as we come to be a servant in his name. It will make us lowly, humble servants like Jesus is. Um, But as we surrender to being a servant, we need to consider some things about that. And as Jesus was teaching his disciples... Like, there's the way that he breaks it down, he's basically asking them or teaching them to consider a few things about what it means to be a servant, about servanthood. Like, what is its nature, the nature of servanthood? And what do we see from Jesus, the greatest servant who's ever walked the earth? And so we're going to do that together. We're going to take a look at things that we need to consider as a servant of the Lord. And the first thing is we need to consider the cost. In chapter 10 here, verses 32 through 34, it says, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid, astonished and afraid. And again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem, he said, and the son of man will be delivered over to chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death, hand him over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, spit on him, flog him, and three days later, after he's killed, he will rise. Praise God. Hallelujah. So he's telling his followers this, like, hey, here's what's about to go down, as they're on their way to Jerusalem. It says, they were on the road up to Jerusalem. Now, up to this point, because we know the whole story, we know where all this stuff takes place, we knew, hey, they're heading to Jerusalem, and we know what's going to happen there. But now he explicitly shares, hey, this is where we're headed. We're on, we're on our way to Jerusalem. This is, this is the destination. We've expected that that is the place, but now we know that his passion will occur there because it's just being simply stated. He's saying, hey, here's where we're about to be, and here's what's going to go down. Now, Jesus the Savior is leading the way into this town. He's not walking meekly or in fear or scared about where he's headed, even though he's told them what's about to happen. He's leading the way into town. His face is set towards the destiny that God has laid before him. And he's marching forward. He's counted the cost, and he's decided that nothing will stop him on his march to the cross. Praise God for that. As they count the cost, one of the first things that the disciples, and therefore us, we, need to realize is that the road to service invites misunderstanding. Anybody ever in here ever been like feel misunderstood because of the way in which they serve Jesus or because they've been obedient to him in some way and people around them just don't get it? Maybe it's your family, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your boss, like somebody just doesn't get it. There's misunderstanding, right? It's bound to happen when you are on the road to serving Jesus, considering yourself one not to be served, but to serve as he did when you're considering that cost, we need to understand that this kind of service invites misunderstanding. The world just isn't going to get it all the time. It's counterintuitive to how we in our society are programmed to operate. So Jesus is leading the way here amidst understanding. He knows where they're going. He knows what he's going to do. But the disciples don't. And it says they watch in amazement or astonishment and some in fear, right? There's this tension of feelings like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. But we have no clue what's going to happen, so we're super scared. You ever felt that when you're following Jesus? This is the best thing ever, but I'm terrified at what's about to come. Because I know it could be anything. I know I'm not in control. I know I don't understand it all, but it's still amazing because it's like there's this tension that they're feeling on the inside. How do you walk in this place of like, oh my gosh, this is, this is what's about to go down, uh, assuming that they're letting this start to sink in as they're learning from Jesus, and also like, but what are the implications of that on me, on my land, on my people? They're experiencing amazement and fear, and they have no idea what awaits Jesus, even though he said it. They have no idea what that will look like. They can't wrap their mind around it, and we see that because after he is killed, 
And he rises again. He's like, don't you guys remember what I told you? Like, I still couldn't get it to sink in. Which this unknown is most likely the contributor to this fear that they're feeling, right? And we can relate. Like, oh, what next? What now? How am I going to pay that bill? What am I going to, why, how am I going to reconcile that relationship? How am I going to go on without that relationship? The fear of the unknown, that anxiety contributes to this. And that's what they're experiencing here. But Jesus knew fully, like I said, what was going to go down. He'd counted the cost, even as others misunderstood. From chapter 8 through chapter 10, we see him trying to tell the disciples, this is the third time now, hey, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again. And then he gives them this teaching, this discipleship moment afterwards. And they just, Even them, those that are walking the most close with him, are confused. They're misunderstanding. They're not getting it. And so many times in our lives, we expect as we're going through things or we're walking through life that those closest should just get everything, right? My spouse should just understand that. Why doesn't she just understand? Like, why doesn't he, is probably more appropriate, just understand me, right, ladies? Like, what is going on? Why can't those closest to me just get it? And we take it for granted that, like, it's not always the case. There's often misunderstanding, even from those that were closest to Jesus and walking with him. But know that it's going to be the same with us in our relationships. It is countercultural to serve others in obedience to Jesus. That is not the way the world tells us to live. And so we got to be okay with that. It doesn't mean we got to settle for that being the norm, that there's a misunderstanding around it, because someday when Jesus comes back, the norm will change. Someday that norm will change, but in the meantime, we are to be a glimpse of what that future normal will be as far as being humble servants of the Lord in everything we do. You're going to be misunderstood. It's okay. You're in great company. Jesus went through it. As we count the costs of servanthood, we need to understand there will be misunderstanding. But on top of the misunderstanding, there is also a mission. It's not just serve for the sake of serving. There is a mission. And Jesus outlines his mission here to his people. It says that privately he took the 12 aside and he provides what up to this point is the most detailed and precise prophecy of the passion or of his death and resurrection. This is the most details we've got up to this point, especially as we read the book of Mark. Now, there's eight specific aspects of this passion and his mission that are laid out in verses 33 and 34. God, out of his power and knowledge, has laid out the road Jesus will take and walk and the plan that he will accomplish. Again, it's no different with us. Like, God aligns our purpose, our plan, the mission that he has for us to accomplish in our lives. There are no accidents or surprises when it comes to us following and walking out the plans and purposes of God in our life. He knows what he has for us. He knows the plans he has put before us. And those things are given to us by him. He has a plan for your life. He has a plan for my life. He has a plan for his church that he has put before us. He sends us to serve. And there is a mission in that. But we need to consider the cost. There's a misunderstanding, and there's a mission, and that's part of this road to servanthood. The second thing is that we see here is there's, there's a challenge in this, and we need to consider that. In verses 35 through 40, it says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Sounds good, guys. <laughs> what do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they've been prepared being a servant doesn't come easily. It doesn't come easily. Those of you that have been around this church, especially since the beginning or a couple years, even serving in the context of just a church community, doesn't come easily. <laughs> serving those that are far from God or the family members that you don't want to be around on Christmas, but it's Christmas or whatever else it is, serving in and of itself is, does not come easily. 
there's some, some joy, obviously, that's in there when our heart's in the right place, but we got to understand, like, this is so counter to the way that we're programmed by the world around us that there's a challenge and it. it doesn't come easily, especially for those who have been trained to lead and especially those who dream of being served. Have you ever, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, have you ever just thought, man, what would it be like to just have people do that for me? To just take, take care of that. Or, or we see the movies. Maybe For me, I always get this idea of like the ancient Egypt in the movies where they just carry their leader around on a cot and they're waving fans and feeding them grapes. I'm like, oh man, that wouldn't be so bad, would it? But just this idea of like existing to get to a pinnacle or a place where you can be served and things are just easy. Like that, that is the idea some people have of what it means to be successful. Is I just get to a place where everything's just taken care of for me right? Where I can just like lead and everyone does everything for me. And that is kind of what an idea in our society of, of like what it means to arrive can be. So there's this battle that we have to engage in in the flesh because of these false ideologies of what success looks like, of what it looks like to um, have healthy relationships and successful relationships in our life. And there's a voice in our head from our fallen sinful nature that can whisper pervasively even in this that, hey, the Lord takes care of those who take care of themselves, right? Like this, this idol of self-preservation and providence, like, hey, you take care of yourselves and that's going to honor God and he's going to bless you even more. Like so much of the way in which we're programmed to work is, hey, get to some pinnacle of success, of influence, of affluence, like we talked about last week. And if you take care of yourself, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, then God will help take care of you and propel you even further. And in that statement, like the Lord takes care of those who take care of themselves, there's just enough truth to deceive us, right? Because the Lord does take care of us. So there's just enough truth to deceive us but there's also just enough heresy to derail us. There's just enough heresy. And so in this one statement, it's like, oh yeah, there's a little bit of truth there, but there's also enough heresy to get us off the rails. So many times we get something that sounds good, looks good, is a nice meme, and there's enough truth in it that we latch onto it, and we find ourselves in an unhealthy dependence on ourselves or someone else instead of a healthy dependence on Jesus. And James and John get one thing right here, but everything else wrong. They are correct that Jesus is headed for glory. They're acknowledging that. But as far as how the glory would come, they had no clue. They had no clue at the cost that it would come. Because being a servant goes against our human inclinations. There was just no way that they could have fathomed what the cost would be because they had no paradigm, no box, no file to place what they're about to witness into. And James and John's request here reveals their complete lack of comprehension for what Jesus said and did. They just, they just couldn't get it. So Jesus had already promised them that, he, that they would sit, the 12 would sit on 12 thrones with him in the kingdom in Matthew 19, 28. He promised them this. Like, these guys knew they were going to be on the thrones. They were going to have a special place. However, that wasn't enough because they wanted the most honored thrones. They wanted the two best spots, the best seats in the house in the kingdom and they separated off from the rest of the 12 and they wanted to go get in they're you know called dibs on these two priority seats the first class seats if you will and their request reveals these three things about them their superficial understanding of what it means to follow jesus and to be his disciple is revealed in that because it's just such a flippant thing to ask hey just put us at your right and left in your glory and you know the other guys will be okay but come on we know who your favorites are it also reveals their inflated opinion of their own importance. Can we relate to that? Sometimes we have maybe an inflated view of our own importance. Something that those who are called to lead are especially susceptible to, right? When, when people report to you, when you're leading people, when people are looking to you for answers or guidance, it's really easy to think you're very important. And this was the case for these fellows. And it also reveals their wrong understanding of how God measures greatness, how he measures greatness. Being a servant goes against our human inclinations. It's often counter to our opinion of ourselves. 
We know who we are. We know what we've done. We know what we deserve or we think we deserve. But being a servant after the pattern of Jesus is something that is given from God. It is a divine enablement. You cannot serve in the way Jesus calls us to serve aside from the enablement, the supernatural enablement of God. It is a divine thing. It's not a human inclination. It's not something you're raised to understand. It is something that God gives us. Being a servant is ordained by divine revelation. It's something directly given from him, the ability to do that. And as Jesus responds to them here, you know, oh yeah, we want to we be at this seat. We could, we could see like Jesus having every right to get kind of snarky with them, right? And be like, you guys still don't get it. I really got to put my foot down and get you in your place here. So maybe as I'm getting ready to, to ascend into the heavens, you can get your head screwed on straight as you continue my work by the power of the Holy Spirit, but he is firm but gracious with his response. And he compares his approaching suffering and death to drinking a cup and experiencing baptism. Drinking of a cup and experiencing baptism. These are interesting yet powerful metaphors, but they're only powerful if we understand what he's saying, right? So, so let's look at this real quick. Drinking a cup with someone speaks of sharing that person's fate or experiencing their destiny. So Jesus just told them what his fate was going to be as he entered in Jerusalem. And now he's saying, they're like, oh, we want to drink of your cup. And he's like, oh, you will. <laughs> just not in the way that you think. You will. The cup was also a common picture of the wrath of God's judgment in the Old Testament. There's at least four places where it talks about drinking of the cup as receiving God's judgment. But then similarly, Jesus' passion and death were a baptism. I don't know if you guys noticed it, but like three times, baptism was said three times within six words, right? Like, baptism of the baptism that I'm going to be baptized in. Like, it's, it's a part of this. His, pa- his passion and death were a baptism. His being overwhelmed, flooded, and immersed in the destiny that was planned for him by his father. He was fully immersed in this plan, this purpose that his father had put before him. His cross was a divine appointment. It wasn't something that when he was just out strolling along through Galilee doing his ministry, he's like, you know what, I think I'm going to do this cross thing. I hear that's the way to go to accomplish this mission of reconciliation. It was something that God the Father put before him, and he was fully flooded and immersed in it. Jesus understood that this was the Father's will for his life. But he still struggled with the weight of it. <clears throat> what did he pray? <laughs> oh, man. <clears throat> so, what did he pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? He prayed, take this cup away from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. He still struggled with the weight of this reality, but he knew what God's plan was. And then Luke 12, 50, he said, but I have a baptism to be baptized with and how it consumes me until it's finished. He was totally consumed, totally flooded with God's purpose for his life. Now, James and John's all too quick answer makes it plain they didn't understand, right? These guys never cease to amaze me. But Jesus reveals that they are indeed ordained for a similar Destiny. In fact, James would be the first of the apostles to be martyred. He would drink of that cup. John would experience alone the great persecution of Domitian as he was exiled in Patmos, which is where he wrote Revelation from. But to choose to sit on the right and the left was a decision for the Father, not for Jesus. And it's not the kind of question that those who will actually sit in those seats would ask. Right? Like, hey, can we get, can we get those first class spots? Like, can we get a little upgrade from just a, a throne with the 12 to your left and right? And Jesus is like, hey, that's, that's not up to me. <laughs> but if I'm going to be honest with you, the ones who are going to sit there wouldn't ask that kind of silly question. They wouldn't ask that question. Sadly, James and John fail to see that the pathway to glory is always the pathway of suffering. 
They think they can just take the tram over the valley and get right up there to the right and the left hand, get right up there into glory, but they forget about the valley of the shadow of death that Jesus himself will go through, and we as followers of him will go through, not staying and dwelling, but through to get to that other side. There's a process that they just want to skip over because it sounds fun to sit at the right and the left hand of the Father. But before the crown, there is a cup of suffering. And before the blessings that flow, there's a baptism that overwhelms and drowns us with the plans and purposes that God has for us. Another thing on our way to servanthood or in the midst of servanthood that we have to consider is the conflict that comes. What? There's conflict in being a, there's conflict in community, right? Nobody in here has experienced that in church or be serving people or anything, right? Mark 10, 41 through 44 says, When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. So the ten are angry with the two, right? The ten are angry with the two. And probably because maybe they wish they would have just thought to ask first for those seats. And probably because they felt like maybe their unity was thrown out of whack a little bit by this request by these guys going off and trying to get some favor with Jesus. But he steps in again and uses this occasion for one of the most powerful lessons on being a servant. On being great in God's kingdom. Hey guys... Here's what it actually looks like to be great through the eyes of your heavenly Father. And it's a hard lesson to learn, and it doesn't seem to make sense the way that we are wired by earthly standards, because by earthly standards, self-promotion is like the way to get to the next rung on the ladder, right? Like, how many times do you hear, you just need to advocate for yourself? And I'm not saying that that's wrong, I'm just saying that's not the kingdom way, right? Like advocating for yourself for more position or hierarchy in God's kingdom. By heavenly standards, this way could not be more wrong. So as we seek to be servants like King Jesus was, we have to say no to the ways of the world. There's just some things about the way this world works that we just we can't try to adapt to or uh, take on for our own modes of operation. Because the lost world is driven by selfish ambition. And we know it because we can feel that in our own self sometimes, right? There's just a lust for raw power and position in our world. In our world, the more important you are, the more people serve you. And that can look really appealing. The more power, the more people that serve me. The more power, the more people that answer to me and I can have do my bidding. But Jesus responds by saying, but it must not be so among you. This may be the way of the world, but not. It will not be among you. You, my people, will not be marked by this trait, by this mode of operation. In Jesus' world, the more important you are, the more people you serve. It's a total flipping of how this thing works. Jesus opposes the mindset of the world, and so must we. It's not, I want to be important so that people will serve me. It's, I want to serve people, and I want to bring that glory to God. It is not about us. We come to serve. So we must say no to those things that are away the world, but we also need to say yes to the work of a servant. In living in America in 2020, um, our idea of what the Bible means when it uses the word slave or servant can be really hard for us to comprehend. It's not like, oh, I, I, I wait tables or I serve in some sort of like job capacity. Like when he says you will be a servant or you will be a slave, like that means like in their society it was viewed as the lowest of low. And it was often people that were taken advantage of and oppressed. But Jesus is changing what it means to be a servant. He's saying it's not just a status of oppression. It's not a lowly thing. It's actually greatness that you would come humble, putting others above yourselves and focusing on being a servant rather than trying to get others to serve you. 
Functionally, he's saying, if you want to be great, do something great for God. Like, serve in a great capacity, bringing glory to him. Don't try to get others to serve you. If you want to honor and please the Lord Jesus with your life, Jesus says you must become a servant to all. A servant to all. Such a person will take on the mindset of Christ, holding others in higher esteem than they hold themselves, and not giving attention to their own interests, but to the interests of others. And again, this is something that we have to be enabled by the Lord to do, because it's not something that we grow up with just like the power and the mindset to live this way. We desperately need the power of the Holy Spirit to empower and equip us to live this way. Because Jesus is reversing the ideas of greatness. He's turning the world's philosophy on its head and bringing about a new kingdom that will be marked by a new type of citizen. So who will we say yes to will be a battle. It's not an easy decision. And to many people, it won't make sense. Our decisions, the way in which we function, how we serve, who we serve as ambassadors of Christ will not always make sense. But nevertheless, we are called very explicitly to be servants. We also need to consider Christ and what he's doing in all of this. Verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now Jesus has told us that he dies in Jerusalem, and now he tells us why. He makes a promise that no other religious leader in the world could make. He came to serve you and me, not just as our example, but as our ransom. As our ransom. Like, there's, there's some things that we need to understand about that. Before we unpack this verse, there's a couple points of clarification that people have gotten mixed up theologically over the years, or people have tried to say, oh, well, that means this. It's just not true. So first of all, there is no, zero, absolutely no thought in the Bible that this ransom was paid to Satan. You see, when you watch movies or you think about a ransom in our modern day, like the thing that I always think of is like, oh, the pirates took a ship and they're holding it ransom. And if this business owner gives $3 million to the pirates, they'll let the ship go. Like that's what I think of with a ransom. So if we apply that logic to this scenario with Jesus, Jesus, if Satan is holding his people captive, then does God pay Satan a ransom when Jesus says he's ransomed for all so that he can be free? That's not the case here, but this is actually a common, like, something that people try to use to break down Scripture and the power of what Jesus did. At the cross, Satan only received one thing. That was his defeat and ruin. He didn't receive some ransom. There was no, nothing that he got from it. There wasn't some exchange with him. It was simply a stomping on his head, as we read about in Genesis, that happened at the cross with him. Also, the price that Christ paid was not taken from him. He freely, and as Hebrews 12.2 says, joyfully gave it. Jesus wasn't drugged to the cross, bemoaning that he was headed there. He wasn't taken there against his will. It didn't surprise God that this happened. He freely, and as the scriptures say, joyfully gave his life at the cross. He was the great giver, not a painful victim. To understand the cross, we need to look at these nuances of things and understand that there's power in that. People will often like demonize those who were a part of the crucifixion, right? Like, oh my gosh, they killed Jesus. It's like, well, yes, but God kind of planned that. He kind of sent him there. Jesus talked about it three times in chapters 8 through 10 in Mark. Like, this, this wasn't something that surprised Jesus he even prayed in the garden, God, would you take that away from me? But not my will, but yours. Like, Jesus was not a victim in this. He was a great giver, a great giver. Jesus in John 10, 18 says it this way, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. No one took it from me. I laid it down, and I did it freely and joyously. So we need to follow Christ. We need to consider him in how we serve. 
And as this goes into this verse, it says, for even, which emphasizes just a great humility and service on the one who has every right to have others serve him. Because the writer is saying, hey, even for this, like for even Jesus, who has every godly authoritative right that he could want to claim, even he is doing this. And the Son of Man title radically defines what and who the Messiah would be. He's a suffering Messiah, a servant Messiah, the man for all men and a man from heaven, because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And we also need to follow Christ in sacrifice, in sacrifice. In verse 45, it uses the word that he, he would come. And this is a strong giveaway that he existed before he was born of Mary. Because if he was just born of Mary, he'd just be like, oh, he was birthed. But no, he, he came from somewhere else. He came to give his life, not have it taken. Jesus did not have to die despite God's love. He died because of God's love. He came as a sacrifice from his place with the Father, with everything that he could want and need. And he came down to be man and pay this ransom. He gave his life as a ransom, a great exchange to deliver us through a purchase. A great price was paid. You see, the cross is the self-substitution of God for sinful humanity. There's this amazing exchange that takes place to deliver us. We needed a ransom because we had all gladly and willingly sold ourselves into the bondage of the slavery of sin. We just handed that over, taken, taken that up. But when he purchased us, our slave master, sin, death, hell, and Satan had to set us free. He paid that ransom, which removed the oppression on our lives and freed us from the clutches of those things. So the greatest and best person who ever lived walked the earth as a humble servant, as a humble servant. He got down so low so that he could lift others up, being their ransom, seeing them be freed. So how can we, as servants and as followers of Jesus, serve in this same way? How can we serve in the same way? From a place of humility, being humble, not thinking that we're above any level of serving others so that we can be a part of seeing Jesus raise them up. Help people move closer and closer to following Christ with every conversation, every day that they have in front of them. Now, you may not, when you, read, when you read through this or when Matt read it to you, you may not see this last part this way, but I believe this last point is what God really wants us to get here today. And that is to be a servant, we have to consider the vision. Mark 10, 46 through 52, it says, Then they came to Jericho, as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. This is your chance. And throwing his cloak aside, he jumped up to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. I just... I just love this story. Talk about a childlike faith. Jesus, Jesus, help me. Help me. Now this happens. This is the last thing we read about in the Gospel of Mark between Jesus discipling the 12 and him entering into Jerusalem. Like it seems like such random placement. But he's teaching them, you must serve, right? You got to be a servant. You, you don't come to be served. You come to serve others. And then he's approaching, leaving Jericho. And he's approaching Jerusalem. And, all, and then he stops to care for this person that needs cared for. Like, if any of you have ever, like, played sports, there's this whole pregame thing where it's like, okay, you're getting ready, the game's going to start, and you're just psyched, right? Or maybe it's a, a weight room or some workout, and, and you're, like, ready for game time. Okay, 
I'm ready to go. And you have tunnel vision. You see where you're headed and it's about to go down and you're just there, right? And like, okay, game's on. I'm headed there. And I, I think of like Jesus and the disciples they, like that at this moment because they're coming out of this discipleship moment. There's the city. We're headed there. We're going to accomplish this mission. I'm going to be a ransom for many. And it's like, oh, but this man's calling out to him. And even in his pursuit of the plan and purpose that God has so closely set before him, he takes the time to care for and serve who would be viewed as the most lowly person around him at that point. It's like, hey, I'm not going to miss an opportunity to give you disciples another illustration of what it looks to live, or yeah, what it looks like to live the way I'm calling you to live. So Jesus comes into Jericho here. And it's worth noting, because if you read through all of the Gospels, there's some things that are worded a little differently. There were actually two Jerichos in Jesus' day. Did you guys know that? I didn't know that. Um, there's the ancient city of Jericho, and then there was the Herodian Jericho, which was the new Jericho. That as Herod reigned, he's like, this is going to be the new Jericho. So there, there were literally these two towns. And Matthew mentions two blind men, whereas Mark and Luke only mention one. So sometimes we read these things in the Bible like, oh man, that contradicts itself. Now I just got to throw out the Gospels. I can't believe any of this, right? Like, that's, that's not actually what's going on here. There's, there's always a reason for these kind of accounts. And oftentimes it can be as simple as, well, that was a dude that Jesus inspired to write this through the Holy Spirit, and maybe he saw things a little differently, right? Or maybe he was standing at a different place at this event and saw different things. But here... Um, Mark and Luke, like I said, only mentioned one, and Mark is the only one that talks about this guy's name being Bartimaeus. So you got three Gospels where this account's mentioned, and they all differ just a little bit, but that doesn't mean that any of them are inaccurate. Rather, Mark and Luke chose to focus on the more vocal of these two men, is what historians believe. Like, okay, yeah, there are two guys there, but Mark and Luke are just focusing on the one who actually interacted with Jesus in this moment. And then Matthew and Mark say the miracle occurred as Jesus was leaving Jericho, and Luke says it happened while he drew near to Jericho. Now, this may be because Matthew and Mark use the new Jericho as their reference point, and Luke uses the old Jericho, or vice versa. Whatever one it is, the point is, there's a lot going on. We weren't there. And so, can we read the Gospels with a lens of like, you know what, I don't know everything about the ancient Near East. <laughs> I wasn't there. And, like, I can see how if there's two Jerichos, both of them could have been saying the same thing with just different reference points. Or th There's so much more going on. This is an account, right? This is not an entire narrative of everything that happened in that moment. And every word is in there. It's not some transcript. The reason I share these things with you is oftentimes as you read through the scriptures, you're going to see things like, ah, I, I thought that was a little different. Or I don't know exactly what that means. And I want to urge you to not write it off, but press in. Because oftentimes God's going to give you some nuggets. And he's really going to show you some special things as you take the time to grab a commentary. Email your pastor. Ask him to let you borrow one. Like, and see what's actually going on at a deeper level here. Because actually these three things work together. There's three different people telling the story from a different perspective, a different life experience. So Jesus makes this visit to Jericho, which is the last major city on the edge of the Judean wilderness. And soon he's going to make the 35 foot of elevation gain, gradual hike up to Jerusalem. Think about that, 3,500 feet elevation and about a dozen miles, give or take, up to Jerusalem where he will give his life as a ransom. But first he stops and he cares enough about this man to help someone who's hurting. And through this act, those with him would be reminded of the vision of what the kingdom looks like. I believe that God wants us to realize that our faith will cause us to have vision. Our faith will cause us to have vision. Like Bartimaeus, the disciples were blind and they needed sight. Not just a physical sight, but through all these discipleship moments, the twelve were still needing this illustration of of what it looked like to have vision for the kingdom coming. Vision for ailments and sickness and brokenness to be gone once and for all. That Jesus, with a word of your faith, could heal you, can eliminate the, the consequences of sin in the world. Like, this is a vision for what will be, what can be, and is being instituted right now and established on earth as it is in heaven. 
You see, there's a difference between Bartimaeus was given his sight back. He could see. He could see the circumstances and, and, and the things right in front of him, right? He could see like now, oh, there's something there I might trip over. He could see who was around. He could see what kind of weather was going on. He could see what was happening right in the now and then. But as Jesus is teaching the disciples here and illustrating these things for them, he's giving them vision. And vision helps us to see what will be, what is through the fog, what is on the other side of our circumstances, what's on the other side of the death and the hardships and the challenges that we see every day. And we need to know as believers and followers of Jesus, he doesn't want us to just see what's right here. He empowers us by our faith to have vision for what's to come. And this year unlike many other before, has brought about plenty of fog and confusion and circumstances that we just can't wrap our minds around. Amen? There's just some weird stuff this year. But as we have faith in Jesus and we trust in him, he actually gives us vision for what's on the other side. And a vision of that is that the sick and the brokenness will be healed. That is not going to be here forever. When Jesus comes back, that's all going to go bye-bye. And in the meantime, we get to see little glimpses of it. We even get to be a part of seeing some of that established here as we pray for people and they're healed, as we pray for people and they get free from anxiety or whatever else, as we, as we see breakthrough in people's lives, them coming and giving their lives to the Lord, like we see glimpses of what is going to come. But make no mistake, there's plenty of circumstances and pain and things that we're going through right now that if all we relied on was our sight, it would be depressing and anxiety-inducing and it would be draining, right? But our faith in Jesus gives us a vision to see through, through the valley to see the mountaintop experience that awaits us on the other side, and that is an eternity with Jesus Christ. And if we settle for the sight, instead of dig in and see what Jesus is wanting to teach him like he was teaching his disciples, we miss on the vision of the kingdom of heaven that he is establishing every day until his return. We miss that. It's my prayer that Grace City and our family and our friends and anyone that we get to interact to would be a community that is noted for having kingdom vision. That we wouldn't get stuck in what we see, the things that are right before us, but that we can press on with vision for what God is doing, what he will do, for the plans and purposes he has for his life, or for our lives, rather than just the circumstances we're currently walking through. Amen? Because you can get really stuck in the mud with these things. These things can get you down and depressed and anxious, and you can question God, and you can get mad at him. But when we can cast our eyes with vision for eternity with him and what he is doing in us and through us, it helps us trudge through those hard places and see what is meaningful and purposeful in our lives. And I believe that is one of the main things he wants to teach us in that, in this, this miracle as he's approaching Jerusalem. As he gets it, this guy was in a cruddy situation. He was not in a good place. He was likely outcast and people wouldn't talk to him. And, and he comes along, he cares about him enough to give him sight while simultaneously casting vision for the disciples of what is to come and what they are going to help establish here on earth. I just think it's a beautiful picture and a beautiful illustration of how we should live our lives. Not getting stuck in the weeds down here, but keeping our eyes cast upon the goal. Cast upon the goal. And we need that this year like none other. So as we close, worship team, you can come back up. The question that I ask you is, what things do you currently see? Are you currently in the midst of that have hindered your vision? Now, there's some really obvious ones out there, right, that we probably all share. Um, you know, <laughs> There's things like, well, when I'm wearing glasses, my mask hinders my vision because my eyes, my glasses fog up. You know, there's just simple things like the inconveniences of everyday life right now, living in this pandemic situation. Like, there's plenty of those. But I believe those are surface and those are fleeting. But then there's other things like broken relationships, death of loved ones, sickness, job and financial situations that are challenging. What kind of things are fogging your view and keeping you from having vision of what God wants to do in your life. And what do you think he's calling you to do about that? It's my prayer that we will be a people that consistently pray, God, make me a servant and give me vision. 
God, make me a servant. Because <laughs> it's got to be from you, because I can't live that way out of my own strength and power, nor do I want to, because I'm supposed to come to you looking for all of my provision, my strength, my direction, like a child, all my faith in you. And would you give me vision? Vision to keep my eyes set upon you, what you have for me, my family, my community in this world. Would God give us the faith to operate from a place of vision and not be hindered by temporary pain? We know the pain's going to happen. It's, it's really clear in the scriptures, but it's temporary. The challenge is temporary. The vision, eternal. It's not going nowhere. Would God give us that vision? When things are tough and we can't see the, through the fog, would we come to him <laughs> and be honest? My God, not feeling like much of a servant right now. And if I'm really honest, I can't see five feet in front of me, much less catch the vision that I know you're casting for me. Invite him into that. Ask him to redeem it. Ask him to fix it. Get around community. Invite them into that and see what he might do. But at the end of the day, as a people... We need two consistent cries from our heart. Make me a servant and give me vision. God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for all the ways in which you illustrate your kingdom as you teach your disciples. God, we thank you that this, this lifestyle, this way of living isn't up to us all on our own power. That your Holy Spirit dwells in us and empowers us to live this life you've called us to live. So for any of us this morning that are just feeling overwhelmed by this call to, to be a servant and to have vision that is eternal, not just on the circumstances in front of us, God, I pray your spirit would pour over them and fill them right now in the name of Jesus. They would have just a fresh indwelling of your spirit that would cause them to look up and look to you, be filled with joy and peace and perspective of what you're doing in their lives. So I thank you for our family. I thank you for this time, and I thank you for these words of Jesus. Would you help us uh, to apply them in our lives and help others to do the same? So we thank you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Would you stand as we finish with one song?